I was reading an article about conjoined twins. I don't know if you've ever really looked at that or studied that. And to me, that's one of the really tough things of life, isn't it? When we see these certain deformities and problems that people have. And that one, I think, would be one of the hardest ones to face. It's very rare. It is something that only happens, I think, in one in 50,000 at the most, and some estimate a much higher number of ratio. But there was one story that caught my eye because I was starting to wonder if there'd ever been a conjoined pair of twins that had the same heart. And I did find that that is a possibility and in one story in the New York Times. And this was back in 2000, but it says Sandra Soto, a special education teacher, was pregnant with twins. But the two tiny girls were fused at the chest and abdomen, locked in the classic embrace of Siamese twins. The, uh, the term that is used today, by the way, is conjoined. The, the term Siamese came from the most famous pair of twins that were from Siam today we call Thailand. But anyways, uh, the only, uh, and only one had a heart. And they knew this as they were um, doing the ultrasound. Doctors where they lived in Puerto Rico and even the Soto's own family had urged Mrs. Soto to end the pregnancy. But the couple, deeply religious and eager to have children, rejected that advice and soon became clear that one of the infants was doomed. So in other words, uh, for sure, if they weren't helped at birth, they would both die. Because I think the, the one was receiving the blood through the umbilical cord. Once they cut that, they would both die. So one is going to have to die at birth, and it would be the one without the heart, obviously. And, and again, these are really, really tough things. We have to have a, a proper view of God and sin and the world that we live in, a fallen world, to understand this. Obviously, those, those babies were innocent, and I believe the one that died in this was instantly in the presence of God and his mercy. But um, this was going to take a very complex surgery to save the one. They were going to do it in Boston, meticulously planned, perfectly performed, immediately after the baby's birth. That was the plan. Over the next few months, the doctors planned for this operation. It was going to take eight hours. But the plan nearly became useless when Mrs. Soto suddenly developed a life-threatening high blood pressure requiring emergency cesarean section, which left the pediatric team only 90 minutes to assemble. In the end, the gamble worked. And today, the article was written in 2000, the surviving twin is a healthy 14-month-old with huge brown eyes and an impish grin. Her name is Darilius Milagro. Milagro, I understand, is miracle in Spanish. And so, somewhat of a happy ending, although sad, nonetheless. And although it is rare for conjoined twins to... Be, to be born, uh, the survival rate is only 7.5%, and 60% of the surgically separated cases survive. So it's a really tough situation, isn't it? Well, what we're going to do is find in Scripture a term where a group of people had one heart. Obviously, we're not talking about a physical pump, a, a, an organ pumping blood. 
when the Bible talks about heart, it's almost always talking about the innermost person, the cardia, the, 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 the real you, not, not this body, but your soul and your spirit. It is rare, though, also to find people that have, so many people that have one heart, one purpose, one goal, and unity. The Bible actually said it is a beautiful thing. It says it in Psalms, and this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. It's a short uh, passage. I think there's only three, maybe four verses. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I find this to be a very, very rare thing in our world today, for people to be dwelling together in unity. Now, I hope that we should be able to find this in, in the church, in, in the, the local body of believers. And I believe we have a tremendous unity here in this church. And that's one thing I love about being your pastor, is we seem to all get along really good, and we seem to be all going in the same direction. That's not always the case in every church. As a matter of fact, in most churches, you don't have a whole lot of unity. And that's sad to me. And within Christianity, I think we don't have a lot of unity. Now, I'm not saying we should, we should not care about doctrine. These are, doctrine is very important because with our doctrine, we get everything, right? So I think we ought to be particular about doctrine. And there are some things that we should take stands for and argue for. But I also think a lot of the things that we fight about within Christianity are minor issues. I really do. And I wish that we had more unity within Christianity. I wish we, I wish we had the unity that they had back in the early church. This was such an exciting time. Yes, Jesus had died, which was awful, but then he had risen again. He had appeared to many and he had ascended into heaven. The Spirit of God had come upon them, and they were bold in their witness, and they had incredible gifts and powers from God establishing that embryonic church. Then Peter and John were arrested. Jesus said, hard times are going to come. If you're going to follow me, these are the same things that happened to me are going to happen to you. And what were they arrested for? They were arrested for the crime of healing a lame man in the temple and then preaching afterwards. What a horrible thing. Well, there was still incredible excitement, incredible unity, even in the midst of this persecution. We find ourselves in our study of the book of Acts to the ends of the earth in the verse Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them that believed, so what makes you a Christian? What makes you a part of the church, you believed. You believed what? You believed that Jesus is God who died for our sins and rose again. It's that simple. They believed that, the gospel, and they were saved. They were baptized into the body of Christ. That's what makes you a, uh, a part of the church. And it says that they were of one heart and of one soul. Now, how many people were there? Well, originally there were a dozen disciples and others that were around, and that had grown to hundreds in the upper room, and that had grown to thousands now, thousands of people in Jerusalem. By the way, remember, these are Jewish people. The early church is 
exclusively Jewish at this point. Thousands of people all had one heart? Impossible. But it's true. And of one soul, they were so unified, they were so excited about God and about Christ and about what had been going on and about how, how God was reversing the, the curse of sin, the curse of the languages had been divided and they just experienced the fact that they could speak in unknown languages, known languages, but languages that they didn't know. It was just like, wow, this is all coming together. Uh, everything's getting reset the way it should be. Obviously, the final uh, setback to the way it should be to finally put down rebellion is in the future still, but it's coming. I promise you that. Every time I turn on the news, I hear something that makes me alert to the fact that the Lord's return is imminent, imminent. So what did all this excitement do? What does unity mean? It actually means something concrete. It says, neither, Acts 4.32, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possesses possessed was his own. And you know, we do possess things and they are ours. We live in a society that you can own things and you should own things and it's right. And I think the Bible gives us those rights to possess things and own things. But really, if you want to talk about like really, really, really for sure, we don't own anything, honestly. Spiritually speaking, it's all God's. And, and they were living in such a reality. They were like, uh, like heaven had come down almost at least in their, in their thoughts and in their, their, their passions to where they were like, you know what? Everything's God's. So they, it says, but they had all things common. What does that mean? That means that they were so in love with Jesus and so excited about what he was doing on this earth through them in their city, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, that they were like, listen, let's help people. Let's put it all together. Now, some people would say, well, that's socialism or that's communism. I'm going to talk about that. Not quite yet, but I will in a minute. Okay. Now, why do people say that? Well, because that's the, the paradigm that's being pushed today by progressives and by, by liberals and, and people that think, yeah, we should just kind of all put it all in one pot and, and, and we should all, you know, and that's going to solve all of our problems of poverty and, and, and equal, inequality and all of these things. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is we're selfish and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If, if you don't, um, give someone more for more risk and harder work, then they're not going to do that. And all of a sudden, you're going to see society fall apart if we move toward that. That's not what this is teaching. Some have sloppily interpreted this as socialism or communism, but I will tell you this, nothing is farther from the truth. One author writes this about Karl Marx. He said, Karl Marx, an atheist and evolutionary racist, who hated religion and referred to Christianity as a hypocritical faith that preaches cowardice, self-contempt, abasement, submission, humility, pulled from that line, referring to our passage here in Acts, 
to develop one of his most famous maxims. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. The author continues to write, the fact that certain passages of scripture or certain religious orders express forms of communalism, look closely at that word, communalism, not communism, or pooled together resources to help one another, certainly does not mean that they were practicing the 19th century militantly atheistic ideology known as communism. Individuals who opt for communal life in a religious order, or really kind of what we're seeing here in the book of Acts, which is really a minuscule, rare portion of the population, do so, and here's the key word, voluntarily. Voluntarily. Why? To serve God. Under atheistic communism, a totalitarian regime forces 100% of society to bend to its will. End quote. Later on, I think we're going to see that Christians had possessions. They took possessions that I think they biblically had the right to own. And they sold them voluntarily. They owned their land, they owned their possessions, and they sold those things to voluntarily pool their resources to help people. That's not communism. And again, it's, it's a rarity uh, that that ever happened. I think it's wonderful if we could ever get back to that ideal, but I think the, the, the problems are so great that it's hard for us to actually um, contemplate doing that. But they did it, they did it, and it was amazing. It was amazing. If we really started to look at things as really not ours, but God's, uh, and we, we did pull it voluntarily, and we want to, and, and really that's what we're doing when we give our offerings. You know, not say you should go sell everything and give it to the church. I'm not saying that at all. Some uh, TV preachers will, will say that. Give everything, sell everything you have, and give it to the Lord, and he will return it a hundredfold, and then I'll be able to buy my jet. By the way, I'd love a jet. Whenever I, I we we owned a, we did own an airplane, but it was a it was a humble four seat airplane. One of the seats was the pilot with a piston engine. Yeah, it's still a beautiful airplane. It got us to places quickly and safely, but uh, nothing like what jets cost and the the operation of of those. So, anyways, that's a that's a side note. But the early Christians were willing to choose to sell or share their property. They weren't being forced by a regime to give up their possessions uh, or sent off to a labor camp, right? So it's a lot different, a lot different. So don't even put, compare the two. The next verse says in Acts 4.33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the, what? Resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Fr friends, that is the key of Christianity, Without that, you have nothing. With that, you have everything. The resurrection of the Lord. If he rose, it's all true. He's God. He paid for your sins. You can be saved by trusting in him. The Bible's true. I can live by it. If the resurrection did not happen, it's all a pile of cards. We're wasting our time. We better just go out and live however we want to live. Do it whatever we want to do. And it's... Because there's no hope if there's no resurrection, right? The resurrection, and with great power, they, they preached, they talked about it, and that's something we should still be doing today. It's all about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the gospel. Now, this is really interesting, and it says, 
and great grace was upon them all. Great grace. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I think grace is great, but this is great grace. Great grace was upon them all. And I will tell you this, every person, every boy, every girl, every ethnicity, every culture, every person in the planet can experience God's grace. How do I know? Because salvation was paid for by Jesus for every person. And that offer of salvation is available to every person. Look at Acts 15.11. And you're going to find the word grace throughout the book of Acts. in at least a dozen times. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Even as they. So everybody can experience God's grace. But have you ever experienced great grace? What is that? It's just grace that's upon grace. And that's what God will do when you're really in love with him and you're walking with him and you're serving him and you're excited about him and you're with other people that are like that. It's like you, you get these, these incredible moments of experiencing great grace. There's another place in the Bible that talks about exceeding grace and that's in 2 Corinthians 9, 14. And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you. There's grace, and you could be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. But then once you really understand that, you're really living in that, it is exceeding grace. It is great grace. And I'm testimony to that, and I hope you are too. If you want that, just come into a closer relationship with Jesus. Walk with him. Love him more. Be excited about him and all that he's done. Acts 4, 34, we continue. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things which were that were sold. Now, in order to sell something, you have to own something. So this is not communism. They had the right to own it and they voluntarily sold it. And I love the fact that there was nobody that lacked. I think that should be the place of the church is to make sure that nobody is lacking. Everybody has everything they need. And and I know that sometimes we get really jaded with helping people because especially like uh, people on the street that are asking for money or people that you know have an addiction and you're worried that that when you give them money, they're going to go spend it on their addiction and you're actually not helping people. And I think that's true with a lot of people. Anytime someone comes to this church and it happens all the time and they want help, they want money, we never give them cash. What we do is we give them food, a box of food. They usually are not very thrilled with that. They want, they want money. Or we give them a ride. We give them a ride to our great Chicago rescue mission, the Pacific Garden Mission. And they usually don't want that either. But there are people that really do need help. And, and we as a church meet many needs. And we don't talk about it a lot. But, but as needs are presented to us, we, we help people. And I think that's a beautiful thing that the church can do. Because you know people. You know that the money is really needed. And, and uh, you know people are hesitant to ask for help. But in a church environment, sometimes people notice things. And they let us know. And we can help. And we love doing that. And that's what was going on. Nobody lacked. 
because they had, they had these possessions. They were so excited about the Lord that they were selling their things and bringing the price of the things that were sold. Verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man as he had need. And Joseph, or Joseph, as we would pronounce this in English, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas. Barnabas. You know that name, right? If you know your Bible, you know the name Barnabas. He pops up here in Acts several times. And this is really kind of interesting, the way Luke writes, and he does this other, at other places, he introduces a new character in a minor role to later reintroduce or re- later bring that character back in, in a major role. Isn't that kind of a neat literary technique? And so here he brings up Barnabas, who's part of this, this giving frenzy and part of this excitement about selling and uh, giving it to people that, that are in need for the sake of the gospel. And it says that his sur- it was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. Now, what is that? Well, it's the same word that we get the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And that word can be interpreted as comforter, comfort, encourage, encouragement, exhortation. So the King James uses the word consolation, son of consolation. But what was he? He was a man that really cared about people and wanted to help people and was someone that when you're discouraged and you're like ready to quit and throw in the towel, there's Barnabas and he's there for you and he's there for Paul and he's making sure Paul is believed to be a man that really was changed and converted on that road to Damascus when he saw the light and people weren't believing because he was, he was a murderer. He was one that was persecuting the Jews. And there comes Barnabas and says, I believe in you. Barnabas was there with Paul on the missionary journeys. It actually says later in Acts that Barnabas was a, a man of faith, a faithful man, a man that brought many to salvation through his testimony and his witness. What a man. And we're going to learn much more about him as we go. But here he's brought into the story. And there's a couple details that are listed that are kind of interesting that you kind of wonder, why is that there? So his name was Joseph, but they, they called him Barnabas by the apostles because he was a, an encourager. And we need to be encouragers. Let me just stop there and say that more. If I have, if I have a fault, if I have, let's say my top, three or four faults of my many faults. I don't encourage as, as I should. I'm not naturally an encourager. I'm naturally like, just let's go. Let's get it done. Why are you complaining? Why are you having a bad day? Why are you, you know, instead of like understanding, listening and encouraging, say, listen, you can't quit. You've got to go. God has something great for you. I try to do that, but I need to do it more. We all need to do this more. We need to encourage each other. Why? Because this world is discouraging, isn't it? Oh, we need to encourage more, don't we? And he was, he was like the, the, the prince of encouragement, the son of consolation. And then it says that he was a Levite. I don't know what that has to do with the story, other than it reminds us of the Jewishness of the church. The church is a 
uh, not a Jewish organization, a Jewish, Jewish entity, but we're not Jew or Gentile, but at, at the beginning, it was all Jewish, okay? And now there are an estimate of a million Jewish people that believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and it's an increasing number, even in Israel. But he was a Levite. So how does that play into the story? Well, I'm going to tell you in a second. And it says, of the country of Cyprus. So why would he be from Cyprus? And here he is in, in Jerusalem. Well, remember, the Jews had been dispersed previously. Now they're going to be dispersed again after Jesus by the Romans. They were dispersed in the four corners of the earth. But they had had other dispersions. Plus, some of the Jewish people would be business people, and they would move to other places. And, and Cyprus is an interesting place. I was just there um, in order to go to Israel right after the October attacks. Only El Al was flying in and out of Israel. And I fly almost always overseas with miles. We use a, a credit card for the church. We accumulate a lot of miles, and I book uh, flights using miles. And I couldn't book on El Al. We have no way to book on El Al with the credit card miles. So I booked to on the way over to Zurich and then Zurich into Israel on, on El Al and just had to pay for that ticket. But on the way out, I booked through Cyprus. And um, I think I'd been to Cyprus one other time, but it'd been a long time. So we get to Cyprus and we're just there for one night, me and the film crew. And it was beautiful. It was lovely. I had seafood, and that's a big thing there. It's obviously an island right off of Israel. But what I didn't realize was that there's a lot of cats in Cyprus. And you probably know that I just, I don't really love, I don't really love cats. I think that would be called an understatement. And I found out that there's more cats than people in Cyprus. And I started sneezing just hearing that stat. And then I find out it's the home to the world's oldest cat. Yeah, the world's oldest cat. I know you're shocked. Now, don't be real upset when I say this. It was an archaeological dig where they found a pet cat under the person. And they estimated that cat's remains to be thousands of years old. And I'm like, I kind of like that cat, a dead cat, okay? So anyway, Cyprus was a beautiful place, and that's where he came from. I probably made half of you mad, but I don't care. No, it's whatever. If you like cats, that's fine. I just, I'm very allergic. I'm very allergic. So if you have cats, we just can't be close friends. That's all I can say. So, um, why does that matter? Well, it says, it says that he was a Levite in the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's kind of cool. He's introducing Barnabas here to talk about him much more later. And there were many other people that were doing this. So why bring Barnabas in? I think it was to contrast him and introduce him to the story with two more people in the next chapter that we're gonna read about here in a second. And so you have a great example of, of generosity and then you have a great example of deception and stinginess in the next people we're gonna talk about. Uh, but why a Levi? And why of Cyprus? Well, maybe it's because if you know your Bible, you know that in, in uh, the scriptures, it says that the Levites couldn't own land. So if he couldn't own land, and, and the Bible has been criticized for this, how could he sell land and give it to the church, right? So how could you solve that dilemma? Well, he's from Cyprus. He can't own land in Israel. 
at least according to the original way that God wanted them to do it. But he could own land in Cyprus and sell that. Or the, the land could be owned by his wife in Israel. So there's, there's ways around it. Anytime people say, well, there's a contradiction or, you know, the Bible can't be right. All you have to do is think about it for half a second and you come up with very plausible and likely explanation. And here's another one of those. But what an awesome guy Barnabas is. And we're going to be reading more about this good man full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, winning many to the Lord, companion of Paul, an encourager as we go through our study of the book of Acts. And then, we, and then we turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, but, so we have the church is excited, they're selling everything, they're putting it in common, not communism, but just making sure people have what they need and making sure that the gospel goes out and, and we're not really possessing anything ourselves, God owns it, and they're just realizing that. So it's all good. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. The name Ananias means God is gracious. And he is. But Ananias is about to learn that God is also holy. Sapphira is another beautiful name. It actually means beautiful. But Sapphira's heart at this moment was ugly with sin. And so we have Ananias and Sapphira. I assume they're believers. They're part of the church, born again. They put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they were going to do something that was wrong in a public way. And in the early church, and anytime God was starting something new, he really used physical examples to warn people of the seriousness of these things. It happened in the possession of the land with Achan and another place with the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the temple, the tabernacle, and it happens here. Something new, God is going to be giving an example of the importance and seriousness of this. What did they do? Well, they sold a possession and they had every right to do. This is voluntary. Everyone else is doing it, so they did it. And kept back, verse 2, part of the price. It wasn't just Ananias, by the, by the way. They colluded because it says his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they, the, the sin here was not that they only gave part of the possession. That's their right. They can sell it for $1,000 and bring 500 but they don't have a right to say, we sold our land, our possession, and here's all the money. That is wrong, right? Because it is a lie. George MacDonald said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. People are so worried that they, that they look good and that they're accepted and they're doing, everyone else is doing it and they know it's right. So they, they want to do it, but they don't want to, they don't want to give all of it. What a contrast to Barnabas, generous encourager, son of consolation. And now we have Ananias and Sapphira being deceptive and being prideful and being stingy. They said they were laying all on the altar, but they were lying about laying all on the altar, weren't they? 
And the collusion made it all the worse. It's bad when there's one person's sin, but it's never really one person's sin, is it? Even if it's just your sin, it affects a lot of people and it can affect a lot of people for many, many years. But this is worse because two people were involved in this sin. Jesus warned about this. He warned about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means wearing a mask in Greece. They would actually call that person a hypocrite because they were wearing a mask and acting out their performance. Playing the actor. Don't do that. Now, now some people say, well, um, I have an ideal and I want to serve the Lord and I want to do these things for him and you fail, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about deliberate deception here. Yeah, we're going to fail. We're never always going to reach the ideal, the things that we want to do for the Lord. But this is different. Deliberately trying to deceive, making people think that you're more spiritual than you really are. That's wrong. That's wrong. There was a guy that uh, was walking along a sidewalk and he sees a sign on the house that says, talking dog for sale. Well, that really intrigued him. Talking dog for sale. So he walks in and uh, he asks the dog, what have you done with your life? And the dog says, I've lived a very full life. I've lived in the Alps. I've rescued avalanche victims. I served my country in the war. And now I spend my days reading to the residents of a retirement home. Well, the guy's flabbergasted. He couldn't believe it. So he asked the dog's owner, he said, why in the world would you be getting rid of such an incredible dog like that? The owner said, because he's a liar. Only half that stuff is true. So the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of lying, the sin of inflation, just be who you are, be who you are. Try your best. We'll fail the Lord sometimes, won't we? But don't lie. Don't put on a front. Don't put on a mask. Be who you are, especially before God, because he knows. Acts 5.36, but Peter said, Ananias. So this was just Ananias at the beginning. Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? You say, wait a second, I thought, I thought, I thought born-again people couldn't be uh, indwelt by demons or indwelt by the devil. Uh, you can't. I truly believe you cannot because you have the Spirit of God in you and there's no place for a demon, is there? But there is a place for influence. We can believe the lie of the devil. We can believe that I have to measure up and I have to act spiritual. I have to, to, to put on an act. We can believe that lie, and he did. And keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. See the treachery? You see the problem here? And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, whoa. I've never quite seen this. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. I bet it did. I bet it did. And you're like, why would, that sounds so like rigid and so strict and so, so kind of unfair. And the young men arose, wound him up and carried him out and buried him. I mean, they just kind of, let's get rid of this guy. I don't Know that they cried a lot for him or, or whatever. Used the money for a funeral. There was a husband and wife that went to the doctor together and the doctor called the husband into the room and examined him after the examination. He said, I need to speak to your wife privately. 
He says, I'm afraid I have some really bad news. Your husband is suffering from a very rare disease. In order for him to live even one more year, you're going to have to do everything for him. You're going to have to wait on him hand and foot. You're going to have to, to run his bath water. You're going to have to get his newspaper to him to read. Basically answer all of his beck and call. If not, he will die. As they were leaving the doctor's office, the husband asked his wife, what did the doctor say? She says, the doctor said you're going to die. Acts 5, 7. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, telling me, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of God? Behold, the feet of them which buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. Wow. Wow. And the young men came in, found her dead, carried her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Well, didn't we just read about a God that was giving great grace and now he's zapping people? What in the world is going on? Okay, keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. God is the giver of life. God gave you the air to breathe. God gave you the lungs to breathe the air. Your body is God's. Life is God's. He can, if he gives it, he can take it away. You ever tell that to your kids? I gave you life and I can take it away. Now that'll get their attention. But, but he has the right to do whatever he wants. He has a right to take our body anytime he wants. And this was an example of severe discipline, but this is discipline. Uh, there is a sin unto death according to the Bible. Look it up later in 1 John 5.16. Hebrews says that the Lord chastens whom he loves. So in wisdom, God did to Ananias and Sapphira something that was actually loving. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps it was to save them from doing something worse that's going to hurt somebody else or affect somebody else's salvation. Maybe it was helping others to take their Christian life more seriously. But God is a gracious God, but he's holy. He's holy. Be like if you had a kid and your kid's pretty good, but there's a brat next door about the same age and they go out to play and your kid finally gets tired of the brat next door and starts pounding on him. You yell out the door, what are you doing? Stop that. Okay, okay, I'll stop. Five minutes later, you hear the little brat next door screaming again, and it's your boy pounding on him. You go walk out there, you grab your boy, you bring him in the house, right? Because I'm not going to allow this. My, my son is not going to do that. It's, I'm not going to let that happen. That's a loving parent, isn't it? There's no break of relation. Uh, there's no break of, of sonship, but there's going to be a cessation of that activity. And sometimes God will do that. It doesn't happen much. I think it happened probably more then than now because it was the start of the church. But it, it's God is God, right? Let's close with this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12. Maybe this is something that will really help you and you needed this today. Now all these things happened unto them for Examples, examples. And they are written for your admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So you might be a little discouraged after hearing the second part of that message. 
but may, may we be encouraged. Let's use that as an example to make sure that we are living a true and consistent life before the Lord. Not perfect, but real, real. Let's get excited. Let's search for great grace. Let's, let's realize that we don't possess anything. It's all God's. Let's work together for the sake of, of making sure more people hear the gospel. Let's help people that are, that are hurting. And we can do that. And we can have that unity. We can have thousands of people with one heart right here, right now. Do you know Jesus as Savior? Have you put your faith in him? I've already explained the gospel. He died on the cross. He's God in the flesh. He rose again. He paid for all sin. If you'll trust in him, you'll be saved. Not just right now. Not just for tomorrow and the next day. Forever. You're a child of God. You're a son of God. And that can never change. Yeah, he'll discipline those whom he loves but you'll never be kicked out of the family.